There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kremitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with Greg and Colin. Greg, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How about yourself? You look tired. I am tired. As you know, I was in Victoria yesterday for client meetings just for the day, and my flight was delayed by many, many hours coming home. Yeah, typical, and it sucks. It sucks. And you know what? It's just the way it is right now. Like I was just there for the day, so I flew in in the morning, flew home in the evening. But even in the morning, going to the airport, the Calgary airport, it was crazy busy. So you got to know all the ins and outs of which security checkpoints to go through to avoid the lines. And you kind of do all the things you can to make it easier on yourself, but still you're at the mercy of the gods. Still a nightmare. Yep. Yeah, but enough about my problems. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody really cares about that but me. But we are going to talk about a problem today. We're going to talk about some fixed income options. And the problem is that the fixed income market is a very complex market, and it's very different than the global stock market. It's not a auction market. There's no centralized place for people to trade bonds or other fixed income vehicles. And there's a big misunderstanding about the difference between these different fixed income products, right? So it's led to a lot of questions lately, especially where the yield curve is, because the yield curve is currently inverted, which is rewarding short-term money more than long-term money. Yeah, exactly. And so a lot of banks and other institutions are issuing GICs with higher interest rates right now right? Maybe somewhere around 5% in many cases. So a lot of people today are talking about, well, why don't we buy one of these one-year 5% paying GICs? So we're going to talk today about GICs, strip bonds, corporate bonds, and high yield bonds, right? Right on. Yeah. I think it should be fun. What the heck? Let's do it. Yeah. I mean, so let's get started with what's the difference, first of all, between the first two products, GICs and strip bonds. And both are fixed income investments. So When I say fixed income investments, it just means that they're just that, right? They pay you a a level amount of income, right? But let's start defining by what each of these investments actually is. Sure. So most people probably know in Canada, the GIC stands for Guaranteed Investment Certificate. And it's a type of investment or savings vehicle that's offered by banks, trust companies, other financial institutions in Canada. And so when you invest in a GIC, what you're actually doing is you're lending your money to the institution for a fixed period of time. And in return, they guarantee to pay you a fixed rate of interest. Which is actually the same as a bond. That's right. Right. How I like to describe a bond or a GIC is you are loaning your money. You become the bank to somebody else, right? So GICs are considered low-risk investments because they offer this guaranteed return of principal at maturity. However, the trade-off is that returns are generally lower compared to other investments, and it's simply because of 
they're lower risk, right? So you have a lower yield because of lower risk. Exactly. So bonds, and in this case, strip bonds, which we'll talk about a little bit more specifically, are similar but different in a couple of key ways. So strip bonds are sometimes called zero coupon bonds. They're a type of fixed income investment that's issued. Well, you can get government or corporate strip bonds. And essentially what a strip bond is, is it's a bond that basically has had the coupon payments stripped from it. So the interest payments. The interest payments. And so what happens is rather than paying, let's say in the case of $100 for a GIC that's going to mature a year from now with $100 plus $5 of interest, say $105, a strip bond doesn't actually pay periodic interest. You buy them at a discount to their face value when they mature at their full face value, right? So you might buy the strip bond at $95 and it matures in a year at $100. And the return basically comes from that difference between the purchase price and the face value. Yeah, the investor is buying the bond at what they call a discounted price. It's discounted to par. Par is the price that a a bond is issued at. And sometimes people say par is $1,000 or $100, depending who you're talking to, right? But In this case, you're buying it at some amount below par, and your return is the difference between what you purchased it at and par is what you get at maturity. So the return is is based on the appreciation of the bond over time. Yeah, and that's the key difference between GICs and the strip bonds. You know, GICs, you may receive periodic interest payments throughout the term. And in fact, you can get GICs that pay monthly or semi-annually or once a year. While with strip bonds, you don't get any interest at basically until the bonds mature at face value. You know, I've been looking at a lot of strip bonds lately for some clients that have had some interest in these 5% GICs. And they say, you know, let's maybe look at this one year 5% GIC. And I, I look through the inventory. Okay, if you bought a GIC from a well-known Canadian bank, it doesn't matter which one, right? Yeah. But that Canadian bank also had a strip bond trading that matured in one year you could actually probably get a higher yield on the strip bond than you can on the GIC right now. So it's interesting to me that people are really focused on this one-year GIC rate when you could get just more return by owning a strip bond from the same issuer. Yeah, exactly. And listen, I mean, one of the key factors and one of the main differences between GICs and strip bonds is with a GIC, you know, essentially you're buying those from a bank or another financial institution. They're issued at $100 par value, and they mature at $100. And for the most part, the banks or the institutions don't give you liquidity, meaning you're not really able to sell those between the day you buy them and the day they mature. Okay. And so for some people, you know, that's a good thing. They don't plan to do it. And most importantly, on their statements, it doesn't look like the price has changed at all. It's $100 basically until the day it matures. So because of the fact that they're not generally redeemable, they're very illiquid. Whereas, you know, if you need to access your money before maturity, then you might face some penalties or restrictions. Strip bonds, which we mentioned could be issued by governments or corporations. They also have a fixed term, but they can be bought and sold on the secondary market. And therefore, if you do need liquidity, if you do want to sell that bond, you can do it anytime between the day you buy it and essentially the day that it matures. But there's a massive misunderstanding there. People say, well, I buy a GIC, the price never goes down. I get my money back at maturity and it pays me 5% in interest. No, The price does go down, Greg. If you need to sell that GIC in the secondary market for some reason, which you can do, by the way, 
you're not going to get par for it. You're going to get par less whatever outstanding coupon payments or something to that effect, right? Yeah, that's right. And I'm not trying to knock GICs. GICs are suitable for investors who want a locked-in investment for a specific period of time. But I think that strip bonds offer more flexibility because of their liquidity factor that you just mentioned. Because you can buy and sell a strip bond at any time on the market, right? Exactly. So let's talk about risk for a second. I mean, GICs are generally considered low-risk investments because they're backed by the guarantee of the issuing institution. So if you buy a GIC from a Canadian bank, for example, then essentially you're getting the full faith and credit of that institution. But it is, again, the guarantee is subject to the creditworthiness of the institution except for the first $100,000 of a GIC. And so as most people in Canada know that when you buy a GIC issued by a member of the Canada Deposit Insurance Corporation or CDIC, the first 100,000 is essentially guaranteed by the government. And so through that deposit interest corporation, but on amounts over 100,000, the promise to pay back your principal again is really only as good as the credit worthiness of the issuer. So for people buying smaller amounts, you know, buying 10, 20, $30,000 of a GIC, they can rest easy that it's 100% guaranteed. It's truly guaranteed. Anything over $100,000 is not guaranteed under CDIC and is really no different than a bond issued by that same institution. Right now, there's a way around that. You can own multiple GICs in an account from multiple issuers. Exactly. To which each one carries that $100,000 guarantee, right? But I think that where people kind of get it wrong is, of course, GICs offer this stability and security. Strip bonds, as I just mentioned, may have the potential for higher returns, but maybe a little more volatility because you can trade it at any time, right? And as you mentioned, no protection under the CDIC. But in our case, if we buy strip bonds, it's under the Canadian Investor Protection Fund. So we did a whole episode on CDIC versus CIPF. That's correct. Happy to have that discussion with anybody at any time. That's right. So I think it's important to look at the fact that, look, if you buy a GIC from over $100,000 from a major Canadian bank, or you bought a strip bond issued by that same Canadian bank, the risk is essentially the same. Unless you're buying the Silicon Valley Bank or the Signature Bank. or yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> and those aren't covered in Canada anyway, so I think we're okay. We're safe there. Maybe Credit Suisse. Uh, that's right. Oh, wait, that one didn't yeah. work out. So, yeah. So, it's essentially the same credit, the same issuer, and the main difference is visually you see market movement on the strip bond, whereas you might not see that on a GIC. But actually, I just want to mention one other thing, and that is that GICs that pay interest on some regular basis, whether it's monthly, semi-annually, or annually, those GICs are creating cash. And if somebody wants to hold, say, a five-year GIC, but doesn't really need the cash, then you have a decision every year to say, well, what am I going to do with this $5 of interest I earned? And maybe interest rates won't be the same as they were a year ago. And so you might have to reinvest those GIC proceeds at a lower rate. So the GIC people have actually solved that. And they've done that through the ability to have compounding GICs. And that way, you know, like a strip bond, you buy it at 100. And maybe if it's five years, rather than getting interest every year, you might just have a maturity value of 128 or $130 or something like that. So, so cash flows are important, which leads into one last thing, and that is taxation. So in Canada, interest earned from GICs is typically fully taxable as income in the year it's received. 
Strip bonds, on the other hand, have an annual deemed interest, even though you actually don't receive any interest payments until maturity. So that considered interest is taxable each year, regardless of whether you received any cash flow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I want to go back to that point you made about the reinvestment issue. Anybody that's buying a one-year 5% GIC right now because of the good rate, they're going to be faced with a reinvestment risk issue a year from now. Because the interest rates are not going to be where they are a year from now. They're not going to be the same. They're going to move, right? And the market has priced in, if you look at the yield curve and just the general market itself, they've priced in an interest rate cut to happen in the first quarter of 2024. Now, I don't know if that's going to come to be. Nobody does. But, you know, if you're buying a 5% one-year GIC or you're buying a 5% four-year strip bond, I would actually choose the four-year strip bond. You know, just if I didn't need the cash, like the income, as you mentioned, exactly. right? Yeah, exactly right. But tax is important. Tax is always important. Tax is essential when evaluating every investment option. And we would counsel people to look for some advice on this. I mean, there's only certain things you can control in investing. We've gone through this, Greg, right? Like, I mean, you can't control markets, but you can control your exposure to markets, right? That's right. And you also, it becomes a real planning issue around asset location, which we've talked about in the past. Like strip bonds, when I started in this business many, many moons ago, you know, strip bonds were yielding 7% for a 10-year strip bond or something. And that's the kind of thing you might tuck away in an RSP, where you don't need the money for years. Taxation is not an issue because RSPs aren't taxable as the income is being earned. And they, over time, they just go up as they climb from their discounted purchase price to their full maturity value. So, so it is important when you're looking at including these kinds of investments in your portfolio, where's the best place for them from a portfolio standpoint and from a taxation standpoint. So I think we've covered some differences there between GICs and strip bonds, certainly with a focus on the Canadian context. Remember that GICs are low risk, provide predictable income and are less liquid, while strip bonds offer potentially higher returns. They're more volatile because they're priced daily and they do offer the option of liquidity through the secondary market. Well, and it's more fun to say strip bond than it is GIC. Exactly. It's just funner. Exactly. It's a blast. (laughs) I'm having so much fun right now. Is funner a word, by the way? I don't think so, but you hear it surprisingly. uh, (laughs) Yeah, a lot. A lot. Yeah. Okay, well, that's kind of GICs versus strip bonds, but there's a whole other side to the fixed income market, and that would be investment-grade corporate and government bonds, as well as high-yield bonds. And there's a huge difference between Canada and the U.S. when it comes to the high-yield space and products. Like in the U.S., they would have municipal bonds that might come into play. We don't have those in Canada. So today we're just going to talk about just sort of plain vanilla investment-grade corporate government bonds and high-yield bonds. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I mean, as listeners to this podcast will know, I mean, we think bonds are actually kind of a fascinating area of finance and understanding bonds and the different types of bonds can actually help people and investors make more informed investment decisions. Now, not everybody maybe thinks that bonds are as fascinating as we do, but I think there's a lot to understand and it's such a big market and there's so many different types of bonds that we'll cover that off and so people understand. So so let's start by defining as a refresher what a coupon bond is or a regular bond. Well, I'm, I'm actually going to start with the bond market itself. The bond market this is not a well-known fact, I don't think, is almost two times the size of the global stock market. 
So when you say that the bond market is fascinating or interesting, it is. It runs the world, right? So with a regular coupon bond, and when we say coupon, that's just the interest payment of a bond, right? Exactly. Yep. So with a regular interest-bearing bond or coupon bond, I mean, this is just a debt instrument issued by a government or a corporation to raise money. And then they use that money to fund their operations, right? So when you invest in a coupon bond, you're essentially becoming the bank to somebody else. You're lending your money to someone else, whether it be the province of Alberta or the government of Canada or a corporate entity. And in exchange, they're giving you this coupon payment, this interest payment during the lifetime of that bond. And then that bond has a maturity, just like a loan, right? And you get paid back all of your money at the end. That's right. And then coupon payments are typically fixed and paid out at regular intervals. And in in the case of most bonds that are, you know, marketable bonds that we deal with, it's usually semi-annually every six months. And at maturity, the investor receives the face value of the bond, which is also the face value is also called the par value. Now, the term coupon bond originally referred to the way the bond was issued. So back in the old days, essentially, it was a piece of paper that represented the principal amount of the bond. And then attached to that piece of paper were a bunch of actual little coupons that could be removed from the bond and taken to a bank and exchanged for cash. So essentially the interest payments on the bond. So again, the olden days, you'd buy a bond to get a physical piece of paper mm-hmm. with a whole bunch of coupons. Let's say it was a 10-year bond and you get paid twice a year, there'd be 20 coupons attached. Every six months, you'd peel off one of those coupons or strip them from the bond, get your cash payments, and at the end, you'd be left with the face value of the bond. These days, of course, bonds are transacted digitally and interest payments essentially go automatically into your investment account. So there's there's no paper that trades hands, but the concept is still identical. Well, and that's a great way of describing how the strip bond came to be. Exactly. Somebody just had this idea and said, if I strip all of these coupon payments away from the paper bond and sell them as a separate entity... There you go. There's a strip bond. Because each of those coupons has an interest payment attached to it at some point in the future. And likewise, the face value of the bond itself, you know that if the face value is $100 and it matures in five years, you know that that piece of paper is worth $100 in five years. And Mm -hmm. therefore, its value today is just the rate discounted back. So, Well, let's talk about investment grade bonds for a little bit. So bonds are rated by bond rating agencies. Many of them, some are not, because sometimes people or companies or countries decide not to have rating services. But there's this thing called investment grade. Now, the way bonds are rated, it starts at triple A, goes double A, A, triple B, double B, B, triple C, double C, C, and D, in exactly that order, right? And anything that's triple B or higher is called investment grade. And so investment grade bonds are often used by people that are looking for stability, right? They're looking for exactly what it says, like something of good quality, right? So the interest rates on these bonds tend to be lower than compared to bonds that maybe fall below investment grade. So this would be double B and lower, double B, B. I won't go through the whole thing again. Uh, D, by the way, just stands for default, right? So you don't want to buy a bond with a rating of D. No. You're not going to get your money back. That's right. And so typically, government bonds tend to be higher rated than many corporate bonds, just because 
most governments have the power of taxation, first of all. If they need to raise money to pay their debts, they can just tax their citizens more. And in the case of independent countries, they can print more money, fire up the printing presses. And so government bonds tend to be higher rated, but not all of them. And obviously there are times, various times in the past when bonds issued by Argentina or Venezuela, some of these types of companies that have defaulted. Countries. You know, yeah, whole countries yeah, yeah. have defaulted in the past. But that's a good point. And that's, maybe this is an easier way for people to understand that. If you had the option of buying a bond issued by the governor of Canada that yielded 4% or a bond issued by the government of Argentina that yielded 7.5% and they were both five-year bonds, and you are a risk-averse investor, which one are you going to choose? Exactly. You're going to choose the safer one and give up the higher potential return in order to avoid the higher potential default. So high-yield bonds are sometimes known as junk bonds, a bit of a derogatory name, but it just refers to the fact that at various times in history, high-yield bonds have been known to go through higher periods of default. They aren't junk. There's probably very many companies that are high-quality companies, but are volatile by virtue of the sector that they're involved in or what have you. But as the name suggests, high-yield bonds offer higher yields or interest payments compared to investment-grade bonds and come with increased risk. But that's why people buy them. They buy high-yield bonds for more income because that high-yield bond has a lower credit rating. And in order to attract investors, it has to pay more in its coupon or its interest payments, which is because it has a higher chance of default, back to that Canada versus Argentina type of example. So these issuers might be companies that are, as you say, they might have some financial difficulties, they might be startups, they actually might be decent companies, but as you mentioned, in a volatile sector, right? And so you think of Alberta, I mean, oil and gas might come into play in regards to high yield bonds. So to compensate for the added risk, These bonds, as I mentioned, just offer higher interest rates. And it's really important to note that investing in high-yield bonds requires careful consideration and risk assessment. And while the higher yields can be appealing, as we've talked about, investors should use an investment manager that has significant experience in analyzing credit worthiness of companies and their outstanding debt obligations to ensure that you can be reasonably hopeful that your bond is not going to default. Yeah, for sure. And there's a key word that we're going to talk about here when it comes to bonds, just the same as stocks, and that's diversification. Absolutely. You need to diversify your bond portfolio just like you would your stock portfolio. And that's just to mitigate the risk associated with all types of bonds. So there's nothing wrong with owning high-yield bonds, but if you're a low-risk investor and you have 100% of your money in high-yield bonds, you might just want to revisit that, right? Exactly. And not only that, even within the high-yield bond portion of your portfolio, you'd want to make sure that you're not buying one or two bonds. It's very critical to have a a large, diversified portfolio within the high-yield bond space so that if you do suffer some defaults, it's not going to tank your entire portfolio of high-yield bonds. And that's why we strongly recommend using bond managers to manage that process for you. Well, another reason too is, as I mentioned earlier, the bond market is not an auction market. There's no single place to trade bonds. Bonds are traded primarily between institutional bond desks. And in order to get the best prices on the best quality bonds, you have to go through institutional bond trading desks. Exactly. So, yeah, of course. So to sum up, investment grade bonds tend to have higher credit ratings. 
they don't tend to, they do have higher credit ratings and therefore lower risk in terms of both volatility of the price of the bonds or default risk since they're issued by highly stable companies or government entities. High yield bonds carry a higher credit risk and higher volatility due to the issuer's lower credit ratings. Yeah, maybe we should sort of wrap things up here just with that, right? Like, I think that's a good point to finish on that if you're investing in a company that has a higher dividend rate than its peers, you would expect that company to have more risk than its peers. Just the same as if you're buying a bond that has a higher coupon rate than the other bonds that trade in the marketplace, there's a reason for that. They're trying to compensate you for your level of risk, right? Well, and and that really is the very basis of capitalism, you know, and, you know, capitalism is not a dirty word. It's just a word that describes the fact that people who provide capital, like individual investors, like us and our clients, we have an expectation of a return. And the expectation of the return is linked to the risk that we're taking with our investments. And so by taking a higher risk, we expect to be compensated for that risk. Now, Expecting a higher return and actually getting a higher return are two different things. And as we've talked about in the past, just because you have a higher expected return doesn't mean you'll get it all the time. But you do have a higher expected return. And typically, in a well-diversified portfolio over a reasonable time frame, you may well get those returns that you're looking for. Kind of like when I showed up at the airport yesterday, my expected return flight <laughs> was 8 p.m. The actual arrival time was 1.30 a.m., So (laughs) I expected a certain return and my actual return was different. Or when you make a reservation at a restaurant and you expect to be seated at seven o'clock and you actually get seated at 7.30 or 7.45, you know, you're still trying to tilt the odds in your favor by having that reservation, but it's not a guarantee. Did this happen to you recently or something? It always happens. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't even know what to say about that. Well, exactly. You know, maybe make your reservations for 645. It's a good idea. It's a good idea. All right. Well, I guess that's it for today. So I'll catch you next time. You bet. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2023.